This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook is all about building towards a greater tomorrow. So I asked product designer Matthew Suber where he sees Facebook going into the future. In short, everywhere. Um, And by that I mean in more different uh, mediums than we exist today. You know, there's uh, billions more people uh, that we could still connect uh, to the rest of the world. So that's what I see. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to talk about our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Automation is huge right now, and the great thing about MailChimp is how they use automations to help make your email marketing efforts more powerful. You know, I read somewhere that more emails are sent this time of year than any other time, you know, with Black Friday and Cyber Monday and Cyber Week and all that stuff. And automations can help you find a new audience with ads. Uh, It can help you welcome new subscribers. You can thank first-time customers and a whole lot more. Sign up at MailChimp.com today for a free account. Give it a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Your online identity really begins with your domain name. You know, no matter what kind of a designer or developer you might be, showcasing your passion online is super important. Hover makes the process of finding a domain really easy with hundreds of domain extensions, personalized email, and award-winning customer service. Right now, you could get a .design domain for just $5.99 or a .tech domain for just $7.99. Now, both of those prices are for the first year, but that's a really good introduction. And you can go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple options that your websites can grow into. You know, Revision Path is on SiteGround, and all of their plans have managed WordPress hosting, including staging and Git integration. So you can get started today with them by visiting siteground.com forward slash revision path, so you can get 60% off on all their hosting plans. SiteGround. Web hosting crafted with care. Oh, and one more thing. Our merch store is closing on December 15th, and everything is up to 15% off in the store. So men's and women's apparel, kids apparel, posters, you name it. You can also get free shipping on any orders over $45. Just go to revisionpath.com forward slash store. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking to designer, educator, and author Gail Anderson. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Gail Anderson, and I am a designer, creative director, educator, writer in New York City. I'm the creative director at School of Visual Arts Press, and I have a studio with a good friend, Joe Newton, called Anderson Newton Design. I do books with Steve Heller, and I teach at SBA, and I serve on the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee for the Post Office. 
Let's talk about that because I, I remember a little bit you discussing that. I know you you came here to Atlanta a few months ago and you sort of briefly mentioned that. Talk to me about that advisory board. That's one of the most fun things that I do. It used to be very intimidating to me, and and now four or five years into it, I'm finally comfortable. And so a couple of years back, oh, several years back, now I worked on a postage stamp with Antonio Alcala, one of the art directors from the Postal Service. And it was for the 150th anniversary of the signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. And after I worked on the stamp, people at Stamp Services thought I might be a good member of the committee, Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee, that advises the Postmaster General on commemorative stamps. And that was something... I just thought it was so cool and unique and special that I said yes. And I've served, I, yeah, I guess for four or five years. I'm on my second term. And so I'm in D.C. at the um, Postal Headquarters four times a year to work with the art directors who, who are really wonderful and, you know, make suggestions or toss around ideas and see what they're doing. And then I'm back again another four times a year to meet with the committee, including the art directors, and we present what they've been working on to the rest of the committee. Part of what the committee also does is read proposals from the public, and we help kind of winnow down and figure out what good stamp subjects are. And we come up with ideas ourselves and work with the art director. So it's a really cool thing that's like there's nobody who gets to say they do that and i do and so i say it and i'm like really that's what i do so it's it's really fun i didn't know that the public could actually weigh in and give their opinion on well on the stamps. public can submit proposals that it's on the post office website and they actually get read and things come through the committee and and we go through and sort of help to pick the ones that we think should move forward and work on some research and see if they're viable subjects. And it really comes from the public more than anything else, which sounds great. That, is, that is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I just cool got some, I, I just got some, uh, some custom stamps. I got ones of the, uh, the new national museum of African-American yeah. history uh, and culture. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> have you been there? Cause I haven't gotten to go there yet. Me either. I have not gotten to go. I was at Black and Design uh, a few months ago, and I spoke with uh, Michelle Joan Wilkinson, who's one of the curators mm -hmm. there. And I remember when her and I met in 2015, and she was telling me about the museum, you know, starting to open up and everything. And of course, it's open to much fanfare and everything. Uh, I, I have yet have to, to go. It's always like a line down the block when I'm down in D.C. It's really hard to get a ticket. Yeah, I know. It's it's a whole production behind how you have to go with getting the time tickets. It's not something you can just drop into town and go no. see. Nope. So I'm hoping that somewhere in our little postal world, somebody will have some cloud and, and get us in there as a group. Because I don't know if I'll ever get there on my own, if I'll ever get in. So One thing I'm curious about with the museum, and I think they sort of discussed this a little bit this year, was what sort of uh, representation of of art and design is in the museum. Of course, there's been a lot talked about the actual physical structure itself. Mm -hmm. But in terms of exhibits, I was just interested to know if that's really included in there or is it? I mean, I know there's history and there's 
there's culture and music and things, but I was wondering if art and design in some capacity were, were part of any of the exhibits there. I know that my stamp and the poster are in the collection there. So there's a little bit of design somewhere, but I don't, oh, nice. I don't know because <laughs> I haven't been there. So if I go, I'll tell you, if you go, you need to call me and tell me. So, I mean, I think if your, if your work is in there, that should be a, that should be an automatic pass. <laughs> <laughs> you should just be able to point to it. Like, yeah, you see that right there? That's I think me. it's in a drawer somewhere. I don't think it's hanging up anywhere. So it's there somewhere. <laughs> so. I'm really interested to know how you, you first got started. I know, of course, people talk a lot about your storied career, your work at, at Rolling Stone magazine and everything. And I do want to discuss that. But I want to go back to, like, Gail as a kid, Like, were you a creative kid? What was your childhood like? I was making little tiny Partridge Family magazines and Jackson 5 magazines that I would, yeah, just draw them and write fake stories and staple them together. And I made these little magazines. And I was like, I wonder if you can do that for a living. And I used to get Spec and 16 magazines, and I thought they were really cool and And I wanted a job making magazines and making celebrity magazines. So it was an early ambition and it was actually realized. So I'm lucky that way. But I was making stuff when I was a kid. I was making stuff in high school. And I had an art teacher, Chris Francis, at Cardinal Spelman High School in the Bronx. And she directed me to SBA. And she'd taken night classes and really liked it. And we had a poster in the corner. It was the Paul Davis poster to be good is not enough when you dream of being great. And I thought I want to go to that school. I love that line. Mm -hmm. I love the poster. And yeah, I kind of made my college decision based on the poster and my high school teacher's recommendation. And in college had the great experience of having Paula share as a portfolio teacher and she, to this day, has, has guided my career. So, wow. yeah, yeah. So, I again, it's like luck, luck, luck for all these years of, of people who've been supportive and encouraging and who I've kept in touch with. So that's, yeah, I keep saying lucky, but I really, really mean it. And working with Fred Woodward at Rolling Stone for all those years, another person who shaped my entire adult life. And so I've had these wonderful mentors at the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine, you know, at Rolling Stone. Just all my formative years have been spent with people who I've learned so much from. So, yeah. So, yeah. Was your family very supportive of you going into design? I think that my folks just really wanted to make sure we went to college and that that was the goal. My sister wanted to take a year off, and they were just like, nope, going to go. And and after college, she went to New Mexico and did volunteer work on a Navajo reservation. And then Mm. they were like, what? (laughs) Like, no, 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 go to grad school. (laughs) uh, So my my folks were, yeah, they wanted us to to have educations that that they didn't. And my mother was a high school graduate, but my father, I don't even think was, was maybe grammar school or maybe a little bit beyond that in Jamaica. So, so it was Mm -hmm. important to all of them, everyone who'd moved from Jamaica here to New York, that all of the kids went to, went to college. So what was it like at SVA back then? Oh my goodness. SVA was so different from now. It was very bridge and tunnel. So everybody was local 
And I'd gone to Catholic school before that. So, you know, I was almost genuflecting when I went to class because I was so used to to certain rituals. And uh, it uh-huh. was the first time in years I hadn't worn a uniform. And so college uh-huh. was very was a very different experience from from what I was used to. And, you know, at that time, this is 1980 that you smoked in class, you know. Really? Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, even in high school, the the. The reward in your senior year was that you got to smoke. You got to use the senior lounge and smoke. So that's like, <laughs> I mean, that's how old I am. <laughs> Smoking was a privilege that you, you know, you're like, yes, wow. I'm going to have to have a new port. So yeah, that's <laughs> what SBA was like. And, you know, now it's a bunch of buildings and, and very international, but it was, it was very kind of people from the area, very bridge and tunnel. So but it was my first experience meeting people from other boroughs because everyone I knew was from the Bronx or Westchester. And it was like, oh, Brooklyn, wow, you're Jewish? I've never met anyone. And it just, it was a whole new world for me. So that's a long time ago. And then there are things about it that are still the same now, sort of a, a sort of funkiness to the school. And, and my, another really important person through my school career till right now is Richard Wilde, who was the chair of what was then called media arts and is now design and advertising. And he's still at the school and still the chair. And he was another person who, who sort of pushed me along over the years and who has been really instrumental in, in any success that I've had. So I've had a lot of great mentors. When you look back at that time at SVA, were you sort of one of the few black students that were there? Yes. <laughs> yes. There was a, a, a woman in because foundation year you traveled in a pack you had all your classes together and then after that you you had every all different people in your classes but I remember foundation year there was one woman named Dina and myself and and it's like okay and I would say through the rest of the other three years at the college a handful of, of mm-hmm. people and even in working I've probably until this job at SVA have worked with very few people of color. So we just, I don't know. Yeah. It's just kind of is what it is, I guess. And so when I've got someone in class, I'm like, ah, you're my special project. So <laughs> like, you need to stay in school. You need to keep in touch with me. Like I got your back. So, right. Yeah. Do you feel like also during that time that you got the support that you needed from, from faculty at least? Yeah. There are people, as I said, with Paula, there are a bunch of instructors that I kept up with over the years, you know, and, and many that I didn't, but a few who who played a really important role in my life. So there, and I think that that's what led me to teach, you know, that I've had those special couple of people who took an extra interest and I was sort of more rough around the edges than some of my more affluent classmates. Yeah. Those people have been great to me over the years and we're very patient. Oh, oh. Well, I was curious to know, because I mean, we've had, you know, certainly we've had designers that have been on the show that have went to big design schools like an SVA or RISD or MICA. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like sometimes their experiences can be a little different just based on on the support that they've gotten or they or whatever they felt like they did or didn't learn in terms of the curriculum, where once they got out into the working world, it felt like it was kind of a bit of a disservice in a way. Does that make any I, sense? Yeah, I remember feeling like I wish I had better production skills at the time, which are very mm-hmm. different skills than are required now. You know, everybody's got to know all 
all kinds of software and this is all pre-computer for me. But I remember feeling like I couldn't do a mechanical, couldn't do good pay steps and, and right out of school, you needed to be able to do that. So our emphasis in school was on the sort of big thinking and less on the, the hands-on part. And yeah, now I think now you just, you have to assume that everybody who graduates has a pretty good grasp on all software, which isn't always the case, but we, you sort of always make that assumption like, Oh, they're young. They're supposed to know all this stuff. What? They don't know. Mm -hmm. So, so I, when I'm teaching, I, while I don't teach the practical side of it, I push like, you've got to know this. People have to leave school now with such a different skill set than, than I did in 1984. You know, you have to, you have Mm -hmm. to know everything now and you have to do print web and interactive and you, you can't just be a print designer in the way that I was just a print designer. So even if print's your thing, you have to be flexible. And, and these students now have to know so much more about how to market themselves and they're not dropping off a portfolio. They're not putting a piece in the mail. It's like all the social media stuff that I see my students just working hard at is, is really key to, to getting people to know you and want to hire you and, You've, you have to put yourself out there in such a different way now that it's exciting in some ways. And if I were in my 20s and starting out, it's like a huge world with more money to make than there certainly was when I was starting out in the 80s. And yeah, I keep telling my classes like, you guys, you're so lucky. This is it's all out there for you. You know, like this uh-huh. you're doing this at a great time where people value you and they you get to sit at the table you know and have a voice and and all the stuff that early on design was a little bit more in the background and you were there in another room at a big table and now designers are leading the conversation so yeah so i I hope it's as as exciting for them as it seems for me on their behalf so i mean do you think so Oh, see, I don't know. I'm probably not the best person to, to answer that question because I didn't. I didn't go to school for design. I, I went to school for math. Oh my god, which is probably the furthest thing away from design. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I went to school for math. It's interesting because I actually wanted to go to school for English. I wanted to be a writer. So, I, yeah, I, I had that in the back of my head too. Like I, I wrote all through elementary school, middle school, mm-hmm. high school. I had been published twice. By the time I got to college and I wanted to do English, but the thing was, it was more about scholarships and money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I came from a, a very small rural town in Alabama from Selma. And so the big focus, at least for my, my mom, was that, you know, I go into something that was going to make some money and yeah. that English wasn't necessarily going to be that thing that makes money. My dad, my dad wanted us to be engineers because the people... Yeah. That long jeans, like all the young people coming in were engineers. He was a watchmaker. And we were just like, what? No, we don't don't (laughs) have math heads. And I remember my sister was a a finalist for the Westinghouse scholarship. And, uh, and yeah, so they, they realized that neither of us wanted to do that. But, and surprisingly, I wouldn't have thought they would have been supportive of art school because it wasn't even design school and it was just art school. Mm-hmm. with an uncertain future but they they it was sort of like you sure you want to do this and they're like yep and it was college to them and i was doing okay so surprisingly there was no uh no great concern so 
When I started at, at Morehouse, I started because the scholarship that I got was to study something that was in the sciences. And my, my mother's a, a biologist. And I wanted to, I had been sort of messing around and doing things with computers. This was like the late 80s to early 90s when like the Apple IIe. <laughs> when all that came out. So I had been doing, you know, basic programming and HTML and stuff. And so by the time I got to college, that's sort of what I was interested in. But there wasn't a major for that. Uh, computer science was sort of the closest thing. <laughs> it's cool. The last year we had... Um we had a couple of Macs and it was like, I'm not taking mm-hmm. that class. I'll never need one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually, I mean, I ended up going and switching my major from computer science, computer engineering to math, largely because honestly, it's because I had the most credits for uh-huh. it. I did really like math. I was captain of the math club in, uh, really? in high school. Oh. Yeah, I love math. But it was something where, like, I was good at it, but it wasn't something I was really considering for a degree. It just sort of fell into place. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, it still falls in my scholarship, and I have enough credits for it, and I do like it. So, <laughs> sure, why not? And I felt like it would give me the space to do other stuff outside of that. Yeah. And so I was able to kind of do more things with the web outside of just doing math stuff. But it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't until several years after I graduated that I got my first design job, but that was largely after a lot of doing just freelance work for other clients and honing my skills and going to Barnes and Noble and reading design magazines and trying to pick up any knowledge from them and, and, you know, improve myself. Wow. See, I really respect that. Like I knew what I wanted to do and I just went to school and I did it, but it just, it didn't occur to me to do anything else but that. Cause it's like, this is what I love. And this is, I'll find a job doing this. And I I guess had I been smarter, I would have thought it through more because it was a much chancier decision then. But yeah, again, luck that that I managed to do okay with it. Well, I'm I'm not going to lie. My first year after Morehouse, I wanted to transfer to an art school. We have the Art Institute of Atlanta here. And I wanted to transfer. And this is silly freshman logic thinking that, oh, my scholarship should be able to transfer from one school to another, right? No, doesn't work that way. And my mom kind of had a come to Jesus talk with me and was like, look, I know that first year was rough, but you need to try to make it work. Like whatever you need to do to get it together, you need to make it work. And that summer I was in California for an internship mm-hmm. with NASA because that was who, wow. who gave the scholarship. And I don't know. I I started doing more design stuff when I was out in California. And I thought, well, you know, I'll see what I can do to try to. It was really one of those, like Tim Gunn would say, as a make it work kind of moment for the rest of school. It's like, what can I try to do to get as much of this, as much as I can out of this experience and then move on to whatever the next thing is? Because even with math, I mean, once you graduated, they pretty much expected you to go right to graduate school. There was no sort of a a career path for you. And the school certainly didn't put anything forth for you in terms of options. If you were a business major or let's say computer science or biology or chemistry, there were certain industries that invested in the school where there was sort of more of a pipeline Mm -hmm. to go into after you graduated. Uh For math, that was it. Like I I sold tickets at the symphony after I graduated. (laughs) (laughs) After I graduated college. And because I had a math degree, they didn't put a calculator at my station. Uh, 
<laughs> because I was very good at being able to count change, well, which I guess means something. But yeah. Your skills serve you really well now. Having a math head served, served, would have served me well having to eventually learn software, do word problems, things like that. That It's like, I'll never use this. Like, I wish I was better at it. I did fine, but I can see where a math head has helped people I work with here working on web stuff and just a whole other kind of thinking that, that I'm like rainbows and unicorn thinking. So (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting because I mean, I I have, you know, certainly talked with other, you know, graduates and things and, and sort of those, those hard skills like that, like math, or, I mean, I wouldn't even say science, but I guess particularly more math and computer stuff. It's interesting how much of it now focuses and factors into design, especially digital design. Yes. Yep, that's way above my pay grade now, so (laughs) I get it. What was your first design job like? When I graduated, Paula helped me to get a job with a woman named Judy Lozer at Random House at Vintage Books. So I was an assistant designer, her first assistant, and so I did the backs of people's books and the spines, and I worked on a few covers of my own. I was there for about a year. And then again, through Paula, I and her partner at the time, Terry Coppell, I ended up moving to Boston to work at the Boston Globe Sunday Magazine for Ron Campisi and then Lynn Staley, because what I really, really wanted to do was magazines. So mm-hmm. I moved up there and was living on my own with a roommate for the first time and was up there for a little over two years, I guess, working uh, at the Globe and had an amazing time. You know, when I started at Random House, after I graduated, I was making $14,000, which was a a sort of average entry-level salary for a young designer. And Mm -hmm. my dad was like, really? (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, his, his, his young engineers that were at Long Jeans were making, you know, driving nice cars and he's just like, Oh my goodness. And it's like, no, no, I'll, I'm fine. So I was, you know, I was living at home. And then when I got the job at the globe, then that was union and I was making decent money for, for a kid and, um, was bumped up while I was there. So they were like, Oh, this is great job for life. And when I decided to come back to work at Rolling Stone, you know, they couldn't understand why I would want to do that. Why I would want to take a, pay cut have to move back home when I had this union job that I could probably have for the rest of my life at the globe. Mm. And there, did you get fired? And I was like, no, 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 I, I, this sounds like a great opportunity and I'd love to work with this guy and I'm moving back in. So yeah, so they got it eventually when luckily when things went well, but I think they were a little, particularly my dad was a little like really the first couple of years when I was at Rolling Stone and the early part of, uh, at, of Random House, because I think I remember my mother just saying, do you have benefits? Do you have benefits? And I was like, I don't know. I guess. <laughs> and, only, and now when I talk to students and they talk about their jobs, I'm like, do you have benefits? Make sure you have benefits. And it's like, I see now why she was so like, yeah, and I have health insurance, right? Well, and dental. Well, you know, mama want to make sure that yeah. you, you're taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So now I'm, I'm nagging people about that health insurance. So, well, it's certainly important now. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, <laughs> it was then too. Where, so. where did that that love of magazines come from? Well, again, from making my own magazines when I was a kid, because we got Life and Look in the mail. We got National Geographic for a little while, and we always got the Daily News. We didn't get the New York Times. That was more of a an upscale Manhattan thing. If you were in the boroughs, you got the Daily News or the Post. So we were Daily News people. And so we got the Sunday News. And in the newspaper was the Roto, the Roto Reviewer. It was the Sunday magazine for the Daily News. And and again, I was like, this is amazing. I want to do this. Who does this? How do you get a job doing this? So it was all about the magazines I got as a child, having Archie Comics, having Spec and 16, and then Mad Magazine. It was like, I, how, do you, how do I do this? So, uh-huh. And then when I was at Spelman in, in high school, there was a book in the art room called Careers in Commercial Arts, and it was published by SVA, and it had as one of the careers a commercial artist. And I was just like, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. So, yeah, it was all about the poster and that little Careers in Commercial Arts book. So, But I just I loved magazines. And it seemed like that's what a commercial artist did was he worked on a magazine. And uh, yeah, so that's what that's what I wanted to do. And I ended up doing book covers first and really like that and do it even now. But something about the puzzle of a magazine and the repetition of the cycle of a magazine and just cranking out a lot of work just really, really appealed to me and still does. And now it's about for me, it's about creating the content as well as as sort of arranging the content. So I still have a lot of old magazines from the nineties that I've held on to because there were certain photographs or layouts yeah. or things that I really, really liked. Particularly Vibe magazine. I still yeah. have old Vibe mag <laughs> old yep, Vibe magazines. Issues too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So it's something really about, and I feel that it's, especially with music magazines, that seems to be the case. And and because you sort of got your start, or, or I guess you could say your start, yeah. but your interest was peaked as a kid from making these same kind of music magazines. Music seems to be a big segue for a lot of designers I found into getting more into this space. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's stuff now that I show when I do a talk, because I, I still show a little bit of Rolling Stone stuff. The people say, like, I remember that. I had that on my wall when I was a kid. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so old. It was on their wall. And they were <laughs> yeah, just like people have really fond memories of things that are music and entertainment related that they really connect to. So that was me, too. So and now it's really it's I still subscribe to magazines. When I started it at this job at SVA, I think they got Bloomberg and Business Week and a few other magazines, but not very much. And so it's like, all right, we need to start getting stuff in here. And and get the newspaper and all that. And, and it's not a younger person's nature to go and pick up a magazine. And when I would give a magazine project in class and I told people bring in a magazine that you like, they were just like, oh, I don't look at any magazines. Or they were bringing catalogs. It's like, that's not a magazine. Mm. That's a catalog. And so I see how for a kid of a certain age, it's like, huh? You know, why would I want that with old information that's, you know, not changing every hour. Um, and I see the magazines I love getting thinner and thinner. And, you know, you hear of the, the, the end of print and all that. It's like, is that actually really starting to happen now? Like, all these great magazines are so thin. And I think that's happening with, with newspapers too. We have, Mm -hmm. uh, well, we have a local alt weekly here called creative loafing 
And I remember when I first got here in the late 90s, I mean, I lived off that magazine. Actually, that's where I got my first design job was from that magazine. And I mean, it was this big, thick newspaper. I would get it every week and just pour through the whole thing. Now it only comes out once a month. It's very thin. And I'm like, this is not, it's like a shell of its former it's self. So I know what you mean. Voice, the Village Voice. When I was taking the train back home from class in, in the city, before I was living in the city, like that's what I read. I read The Voice. And, and when mm-hmm. I was a teenager in high school, I subscribed to it. And it's like, oh, I'm like this cool city person because I get The Voice. And The Voice just folded, you know? Like, how's that possible? Yeah. yeah it makes me sad. Actually, this is a, a good segue into a question that came from one of our patrons, Paul Anthony Webb, who has also been on the show before. But he asked, what are your thoughts on magazines in the digital space? How do you feel a new magazine in this space could succeed? Well, I mean, when you first think of magazines in the digital space, remember when everybody thought like you'd have these iPad versions of the magazines and that mm-hmm. that was going to be the thing and everybody would have the app and and they were huge and clunky. And in the end, nobody really wanted to see their ads flying around or get the inside stories that were already in the magazine and digital form. And so that kind of didn't really work out. Even the digital subscription that I still have for with my Vanity Fair subscription, for example, I never it's like, ah, no, I, I want to look at the magazine. I don't want to, yeah. I don't need to make Vanity Fair come to life. So, and then I remember at Rolling Stone, when the web was first the thing, we were like, how do we translate this magazine, you know, on CompuServe and then AOL. And it's like kind of, live in both spaces and and now how do you live in the print spaces is, is really the question because again my students the young people that i work with like why would they want this why why would they want old information because that's how they see it and why would you want to have this thing in your bag when you can just sort of flip through the app or just have it on your phone and not carry something in your bag and yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's hard. I I don't know where because I always thought no, we'll be fine, it'll be fine. And now, for the first time, I was having dinner with my old boss Ron Campisi, who I worked for at the Globe, and he just recently, and he said like as, as I just said earlier, is it really happening? Is print kind of dead now or gonna be soon? Is Roger Black just published a, a Type magazine. I don't know if you've seen that. The premier issue just came out, and and even me, a lover of type and, and all things magazine, is sort of like, huh, do we need this? I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, <laughs> So, I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think there's something that can't be replicated with the actual tactile I, I feel but, of a magazine. Like, I don't know if enough people still, if people still see it in that way. For it. Yeah, that's true. You know, you you mentioned iPad magazines, and it's it's kind of spectacular how quickly that fell out of favor. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I remember getting the first version of the iPad and thinking mm-hmm. that same thing, you know, because you would buy a print magazine subscription, which at this rate is now like dirt cheap. You can get like three years for $12 or something like that. Yes. And it comes with like this corresponding digital edition. But then it's like, if I'm reading a magazine, I kind of want to detach myself away from the screen in order to do something else, you know, and depending on what you're reading it on, it might just be cumbersome. Like the first iPad that came out, I mean, it was nice and handheld, but you didn't want to hold it forever. Mm -hmm. And you certainly didn't want to hold it over yourself in bed 
because you could very easily drop it on your face. <laughs> <laughs> and you can, you know, I mean, yeah, you might want to take it into the bathroom or take it on the subway. But really, do you want to take a $500 piece of software? I mean, hardware like that everywhere if you just want to read a magazine or read the paper or something. Yeah. I mean, I still subscribe to a few magazines just because I want that that analog, yeah, I guess, diversion but, from okay, technology. So just recently, I picked up an issue of Fast Company, which years back when you were a kid was like this big, thick magazine. Mm -hmm. magazine. And the subscription now is a year for $5. Yeah. $5. A single issue is seven fifty on the newsstand, or you can subscribe for a year for $5. It's like, oh my goodness, that makes me sad. So I was like, I will subscribe to you. But they, you know, they have their presence online now. So like they sort of found a way to make it work and the print becomes the ancillary piece, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wish I was more optimistic than, than I feel right now. I think seeing that fast and company uh, subscription was the one that did it to me of like $5. So. <laughs> and honestly, I see some really, you know, nice design and print that I just don't see on the web. Yeah, of course. You know, kind of going back to what we you know said before about looking at, at old magazines. I mean, for a while, I was getting a bunch of magazines. I think I was getting like The Atlantic and Entrepreneur mm -hmm. and Fast Company and Ebony and all this stuff. And after a while, yeah, I did accumulate a ton of magazines. And I remember I just gave them away on Craigslist because people were doing vision boards. Huh. And so people wanted the magazine so they could sort of cut them up and use what they saw in the ads mm -hmm. and in the articles and repurpose them for a different thing. You can't really do that with a digital magazine. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to kind of take that same form and then transmogrify it into something else. I guess the the useful thing about the magazine being paper is that it's it's paper. Yeah, you can use it for other stuff. Yep, and I've got I've got pages ripped out from all my magazines and folders in my drawer here and on my big magnetic board. So I love that I can just see this, rip it out, put it up with a magnet. You know, in a way that I'm not really going to make a Pinterest board or do any of that stuff. I can look at it and be stimulated by it. And think about it all the time because it's it's over there on the wall. So and there's still people, you know, I look at what Fred's still doing at GQ after all these years, at what's done at Esquire. There there are still really great looking magazines, what Priest and Grace do with eight by eight, and that soccer magazine. It's fantastic. The magazine uppercase that's done up in Canada is beautiful. So, you know, I, I wanna say there's still a place for for this. And when I go to Barnes & Noble, I'm like, okay, there's still racks and racks of magazines, so that's good. Yeah. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I got a lot of my early design knowledge from magazines. I used to live, the last two years of college, I lived right across the street from a Barnes & Noble. <laughs> and I would go on the weekends and I would get the Computer Arts magazine oh, or the .NET magazine. Because, yeah. I, I mean, it, they were like $15 each. I was like, I can't afford this on a, on a college student's salary. But what I can do is go in with my notebook and read through the whole thing and take notes yeah. and just put it back on the shelf. And it's sort of, you know, I guess, in this weird library-ish sort of way. Mm -hmm. You can't really do that with a digital magazine. Yeah. You buy it, it's yours. Whereas with something like that, you could easily go into a place. And I mean, even now when I go into Barnes & Noble things, it's so, it's so great to just walk through those magazine aisles and see all the different kind of inspiration just sort of jumping out at you I do. in a way that is hard to replicate online like i get emails from people that want to know where can i go for inspiration 
And I'll usually tell them, go to the bookstore yeah. because everything is right there. I agree. Yeah, I go to Barnes & Noble up in Kingston, upstate New York, on the weekends sometimes. And it's got the big fluffy chairs and the little cafe there. And I just sit with a stack of magazines and read everything from like the silly celebrity stuff to entertainment. I mean, the celebrity stuff being the entertainment, but being like the low end of, of the, you know, star magazine kind of stuff in mm-hmm. work my way through to the New Yorker and whatever else. So I just, I love doing that still, even after all these years for the stuff that I don't subscribe to. But I, I there's, it's rare that I'll, I'll go to the counter and actually purchase one of them. So I think I've subscribed to one design magazine right What's now that? and that's off What's screen. That? What design magazines are there? Well, right now I'm subscribed to Offscreen. It's this magazine that's out of Australia. Okay. I think it's out of Australia. Well, I think the guy is Australian and he prints it out of Germany or something like that. First of all, it's a very nice sized magazine. It's not like your standard big broadsheet kind of mm-hmm. magazine. It's almost like the size of a, of a book almost. Mm-hmm. I like I'd say it's probably between about, I don't know, maybe like 150 pages or so. Mm. And he puts out the magazine three times a year. So you get it in the mail and it's just really, I mean, it feels nice. It, it, it feels good in your hand. And it's about web and design and, mm. and stuff like that. I'm subscribed to that. I know there's a, I think there's a design magazine that just came out. It was just kickstarted recently called Umber Magazine, okay. which is made by this guy, Mike Nichols out of Oakland, California. Oh. And that's about designers of color. Really? And so I think the first issue is out now or it's about to come oh, out soon. I mean, there's sort of, I still see people trying to kind of pursue magazines more so in the design space. Mm-hmm. I don't really see that in other spaces. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. Well, I'd like, yeah, I'd like to see this magazine you speak of. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you a link to it. It's a, it's a pretty good magazine. I, I like it because... Actually, I'm not really sure I can articulate why I like it because me and the guy that runs the magazine have gotten into it a few times. Uh. <laughs> Largely about diversity. Mm-hmm. And it's something that he has has expressed kind of struggling with as well is how do you put out a magazine like this that's for the design community, but then it's largely US-based or right. it doesn't really feature people of color or it doesn't have enough women in it or something like that. And so I think with him, because of how often it comes out, Each issue is like a new iteration and trying to improve what the final version Hmm. of the magazine is. Okay. So, I mean, it's certainly something that has grown over time, just even in terms of the look and feel. It has grown and changed a lot since it first came out. I think it's on issue 17 right now. Wow. Yeah. Huh. It's pretty good. Yeah. I like it. I mean, I've given the guy flack in the past for it, but that's because I want to see it better than it is now. Hmm. And because, you know, design media tends to only reflect a certain thing back to us when we see who's being featured and who's being talked about. And it's more so, you know, there's other stories and perspectives and people out here. And Mm. I'm trying to give you these things to help you. I'm not just coming down on you because of the magazine. Like, I'm a subscriber. I'm giving you my money. So I would like to think that I could give these suggestions to improve and not, you know, take away from the final product. Mm. Now I'm curious. (laughs) (laughs) I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. Um, Stephen Heller, who I'm sure you're familiar with. We've met, yes. He once referred to you as the quintessential collaborator. For you, what is the secret to collaborating with other designers? Well, that's what I like the most. So 
so maybe that's why I'm good at it. Like I, I don't enjoy doing it by myself. I don't, I've never enjoyed the sort of singular part of design. I've always enjoyed the collaborative part. And because I've had such great collaborators who I've learned so much from over the years, yeah, I've really come to enjoy the back and forth and the sort of sitting and scratching our heads together. And yeah, so I, I, I can't imagine not working with Steve in some capacity because I've done it for so long. And every time we finish a book, it's like, oh my God, never again. Like, this is so much work. And <laughs> and then he's like, how about this? And I'm like, okay, let's start. So, because I love, yeah, I just love talking to people, not in real life most of the time, but by email or by the phone. Yeah, I love kind of having a reason to check in with him almost daily and establish establish what used to be phone friendships that are now email friendships and text friendships. So being a good collaborator, collaborator came from working with so many good illustrators early on at the globe and then at Rolling Stone and, and having a boss like, like Fred who pulled up a chair and we sat together and figured stuff out. And he valued my opinion, which, you know, made me really happy. And, and I learned from him and, you know, certainly valued his opinion. So it was really Lynn Staley at the globe and then, and then Fred who, who helped make me a good collaborator. And, and it, I see it with the people I work with now and, and the designers I worked with at Spot. I tried to get them to work together more as I do here at SVA so that someone doesn't have the pressure of a project all on them. That And if it doesn't work, it's on their head somehow. It's like it's more fun to work together. And it always takes one or two people a while to kind of get on board with that because they prefer to, to sort of be on their own island. But in the end, most of the time, people seem to enjoy working together. And, you know, when I got here, I would pull up a chair and it took a while for people to get used to. It's like, are you going to sit here while I'm doing this? I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not going to bother you. I just want to chat while we're doing it or make a suggestion. I'm not going to take the driver's seat. But mm-hmm. it's... Like, yeah, I'm going to have, I don't have my hand in it, but I kind of have my hand in it. So, and I like that. And for the most part, I'm willing to say like, try this, but it may be really stupid. So it's not like my suggestion is like, this is it and scratch what you have. But I think Mm -hmm. the people over time have become more willing to like try a different way or, or be able to say to me, nah, that doesn't really work. Let's do it this way instead. So it's, I don't know, it just makes it easier for everyone, I think. So, yeah. Is, is there any advice that you would give for any designers out there listening who want to to try to start collaborating with, with other designers? I think that designers by nature don't think that way because you're kind of, you know, you're in school and it's your project. And when you're given a group project to do, it's like, oh, it's not going to work. And so you kind of come into it thinking, I've got to solve this problem by myself. But you don't, you know, in real life, you don't. You're always going to end up working with other people unless you're in your own your bedroom working or your own little studio it's about working together and it's about having again having a voice at the table and that you're not just the one saying i like this typeface or something that you're able to really contribute to why something works or how it can be made better or how the copy reads or what the client is really looking for and it's solving the puzzle it's it's being a problem solver as to me as well as somebody who makes good aesthetic judgments that makes you valuable. So it's kind of just about sort of putting yourself out there and, 
and finding, I guess, who fits well with you? Well, and, and being willing to take criticism. Okay. And, and yeah, because people typically aren't that open to, to criticism and, and really being willing to just throw out dumb ideas to see if anything good comes of it. You know, and I certainly know any new job I've gone into or certainly at the, the post office stuff, you don't want to say anything at first. So you don't want to sound stupid. But after a while, you get comfortable enough with people that it's OK to say something that might be stupid because it might seem stupid because it might someone else might be able to say, wait, wait, wait you know, I know that, that kind of doesn't make sense. But what if you XX, you know, so it's being able to build on someone else's ideas or their dumb ideas and change them into good ideas or to, to take their dumb ideas. That's not so dumb after all. It's kind of crazy, but that's fun to me. I think because I live part of my life in a very solitary way that my work life needs to be more sort of interactive mm-hmm. where weekend wise, I'm happy to not see anybody ever. And you know, <laughs> you know, maybe talk to my nieces and nephews or my sister or my brother, but otherwise, you know, I'm like, I'm good. So it's all about that work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. So as long as there's some <laughs> part of me that doesn't have to talk and can just watch TV, then I'm, I'm happy. So Now, there's a New York Times article that came out, I would say a little over maybe six years ago, that was talking about Black designers. Yes, yes. Eddie Opara was yep. in that piece. Stephen Burks was in that piece. Kojo Boateng, who's been on the show, episode 125, <laughs> if you're listening. You were in that piece as well. And near the end of it, there was something that I thought was pretty interesting because I think the the writer had asked you about sort of being, you know, a black person in design that's at this certain level. And you mentioned that for you, it's kind of been harder seeing more, more women yeah. than it has been sort of seeing more black people. Given sort of where we are right now in the space in tech and design, you know, they are kind of intertwined, I would say, in a lot of ways. How do we help young women stay a part of this industry? Hmm. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I think I've always been surprised that that women sometimes don't stick with it. And I'm always disappointed that there are not enough minorities and think after 30 something years of doing this, it's like, why do I still teach, you know, one black student in a class of 30? How's that possible? And that's the truth. I would say in all the years of teaching, I've taught a handful of black students, handful. Oh, wow. so I don't, I don't understand that, you know, um, and I've taught a lot of women, but there are a lot of women who don't stick with it. And I, I don't know why. I don't know if the tech part of it factors in at this point. Yeah. I don't have an answer on that one. What do you think? Cause you're a tech guy with your map. <laughs> so. I mean, the tech part is interesting because I mean, we're, we're discussing this also right now in a climate where, there have been a lot of recent, I don't want to say discoveries, but I guess you could say recent news about sexual harassment in a bunch of different industries. Yeah. Of course, it, it first stemmed from from Hollywood and, and certainly in the tech industry. These are things which I think have been kicked around for, for decades. I feel like that certainly is part of it. Like men in the industry just need to be better about accepting women as their peers in many ways. In, in terms of, of why they don't stay, I mean, I feel like it's also mentorship is a big part of it. It's about reaching out to to women and trying to put... Well, okay, I'll put it like this. There's one thing that I think is, is really interesting, and, and we can talk about this. I find that there certainly is a lot more outreach towards children, towards making sure that we're we're building the right pathway for children, but not enough about making sure that 
we are creating a sustainable culture for adults. Huh, that's interesting. So like, we'll see a lot of things around like, and this is not a slide on any of these organizations, but we'll see Black Girls Code, Girl Develop It, the All-Star, which does a lot of things uh, for Black boys. We'll see Code 2040, things like that. And don't get me wrong, it is, it is very necessary to do that, to build it up for the next generation. But like, if you're already 10 years in the game, there's not really that much for you as already a working professional, unless you just go to therapy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, there's not a lot of places that you can turn that will help you in professional development or skill building or even cross-training across other different industries. Mm-hmm. It's A lot of it is, and I, I think partially that's because with technology being a part of it, it's still a very young industry. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that this probably exists in other industries. I'm not really sure. But for adults, there's not really a lot. You either kind of have to grin and bear it or you find an exit strategy and you get out. And I guess part of me, like, thinks that that young women probably also think it's like a frat boy thing and a bro society. Mm -hmm. So maybe that scares people off a little bit too. Like, am I going to fit in here? I think so. And I think it also depends on, I don't know, because what I've done is so far hasn't been really tech related. So, yeah, I mean the, the bro grammar culture is, uh, is very real. Mm -hmm. It's very real. Um, and I I can certainly see why that would, would turn women off. But I mean, it, it, Turns men off too. Like I don't, I don't want to go to. <laughs> I've worked in those spaces. It is not fun. Mm. You quickly have to learn how to detach yourself and just do the work, and then go home at no, the end of the day. No. And it's it's one thing that Christy Tillman has been on the show, episode seventy. <laughs> she mentions how perks can sometimes be filters to keep people out, mm. and so you'll see companies that will have you know free beer every Friday and, and dogs in the office and. They'll tout these things as benefits for working there when it could be also things that keep people away. Like, I like dogs. I don't necessarily want to go to work with one because I don't want it all on my clothes and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I actually, it's so funny. I had a recruiter contact me recently (laughs) for a job and she mentioned that I must love dogs twice before she asked me about my resume. Okay. It was like, if you love dogs, that's a plus. I'm like, eh, I mean, I, I like dogs, but like, I'm also not a vet. <laughs> I'm not a groomer. Like, is, you know, you're recruiting me to be a, a designer. Like, so yeah. a lot of things about the culture, I think, need to change. And it's it's not really something where I think the design industry has a lot of useful cues to take from. Mm-hmm. A lot of this is sort of building the culture as the culture changes. And so... Certainly, I think even within the past five years, diversity has been something which has come up a lot in technology. But this is an issue that has been ever present in the industry mm. since it began. So as the culture changes, so does the, the culture of this industry. What was the conference up at Harvard like? Oh, Black and Design. So I really enjoy Black and Design. It's a I have the conference every other year. Mm. So this was the second year for it. I feel like it has it has grown in terms of the scope, the first year that I went in 2015, it was largely about architecture and urban planning mm-hmm. and spaces. And this year it was more about coalition building and, and things like that. One thing that I thought was interesting, I, I got a very positive experience from it. It's always really nice to go to an event like that and feel affirmed as both a designer and as a black mm-hmm. person. It was good to, I mean, I've met up with people that I've only just talked with over email, (laughs) you know, for years. And I finally got to meet them and met a whole bunch of new people and people knew who I was and they knew who the show was. And that was really exciting. 
But one thing I, th- I thought that was interesting is that like, I, I came back here to Atlanta and there was a white guy I knew who went and he did this write up about it for his company blog. And one thing that he mentioned was there was this air of pessimism throughout the conference. And I just thought, I don't know where you where you saw that. Mm. I could kind of see where he was coming from in that, you know, people did ask questions about how do we survive in this era when we have this this government that is actively trying to strip away Mm -hmm. so many things that are our civil liberties and such. And I think that's something that Black people just have had to put up with so much that maybe we don't see it all the time as being pessimistic. (laughs) It's more like we've just gotten used to it. It's just part of the environment. Yep. And so for this guy to say, oh, that there was this this air of pessimism and I had so many questions, but I didn't feel comfortable asking them as a minority in the room. And it was sort of like, well, welcome to our world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it, though. I feel like it could be longer. It's a three-day conference, but it's really like a half day on Friday, mm-hmm. full day Saturday, half day Sunday. I feel like it could go for an extra full day to really get like more more out of it. I feel like this time around, it expanded out more into like experiential design and service design and things. So it, it sort of broadened its scope. It also talked about graphic design as well, really? which, huh. yeah, which when I went the first time around, I was really trying to get people to go. And so many people were like, oh, you know, I'm not going to go because, you know, they're just going to be talking about it. It's just for architects. Mm-hmm. It's just for urban planners. And I'm like, you understand, it's called Black in Design. Mm-hmm. How many of these have you been to in your career? Uh, How many of these kinds of events? Let's just go. It's $50. Let's just go and see what it's like. Uh, and I mean, I went the first year and loved it. Went the second year, loved it. And we'll probably go back the third uh, year. You know, like it's, it's $50? It's, yeah. No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's the kind of event that you really don't see in a lot of other spaces. Uh. I mean, it's like, just just go. And I mean, this time around, they had one of the guys who was there, Brandon Bro, does a lot of branding and things for Chance the Rapper. Oh, okay. And so he talked about his work and talked about, you know, some exhibits and things that he put on. Walter Hood, who's won a National Design Award, talked about some of his, like, big experiential design work that he's done. There were architects that talked about the work that they've done. Antoinette Carroll, who's also been on the show, mm-hmm. she's talked about a lot of the work that she's done around like service design and restorative justice. It was a really good conference. I really enjoyed it. Huh. I would like to go. I've never been to a a black anything. So, you know, that's design related. So that would be kind of fascinating. Yeah. When I first heard about it, I was like, what is this? I thought, oh, it's this exclusive club. You have to be invited to go to this. And they don't (laughs) want me. So... It was. You should go. I, I I really think that you would would enjoy it if you went. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's a lot of people. It's a very diverse crowd. I mean, it is mostly black, but it is a very diverse crowd. It was really good. I would ask any black designer to go. Really, just based off of the name of the conference, yeah, it's really. black in design, but it's yeah. it's very affordable. I mean, fifty dollars. <laughs> what other conference yeah, really? are you going to go to? That's going to be fifty dollars. Uh, none. Uh, no, well, I'm in. Yeah. And so is the rest of the so, audience. And so they do it every other year. So the next one will be in 2019. And so I can definitely tell that they're kind of building it and changing it based on, I guess, what the state of the world is in at that time. Because the first year was really about, you know, spaces and restoration and history. And this year it was more about kind of how do we 
it was more about building coalitions and, and how do we kind of survive in this current age. So it was really good. I mean, parts of it were very hopeful. I think this one woman, her name was uh, Dr. Cogburn. She came and she talked a lot about statistics around why people are are getting into design and and about mental health awareness and things like that. It was really good. I mean, it, a, a wide range of topics, but it all still boiled down to design. Hmm. So one thing that I want to ask, and this sort of is kind of related to the the earlier question about, you know, sort of young women, but also about this this New York Times piece. I've interviewed hundreds of black designers from all over the world. But one thing that I think that sort of ties us all together is that it can feel like there's an upper limit to our success. Mm-hmm. Like there's a ceiling at at some point that no matter what we achieve, we're only going to go so high. Why? Why do you say that? And well, I, I think because when we look at what's reflected back to us in media in terms of like opportunities and things like that, there's very few that have kind of broken through whatever that that limit is and kind of reached the upper echelon of like household design names, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's like a rare air. Huh. And I feel that you're part of that. Rare air? There's like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's like you, there's Eddie Opara, there's, I mean, I think Craig Wilkins, who we've had on the show before. Those few black designers, I feel like that have sort of transcended into the general, I guess, design community. I'm probably really poor at describing this. I don't know if I'm making any I sense here. I kind of get it. I just sort of grew up assuming anything was possible and it, in that I, I wouldn't become, I remember it was at the globe that mm-hmm. and I've told us before there was a, when I started, they gave me a, a minority contact list and I was like, what is this? And it had all the people <laughs> in the editorial department who were minorities. And I was like, why do I want this? And you know, so you can make friends. I was like, what? And that was the first time living up there that it like color and all that went with it became an issue. It was like, I'm on a freaking list. And these are supposed to be my friends. Like what? And yeah, so that <laughs> I, still pause <laughs> I still have my list. Cause I just always thought that was the most amazing thing. And then I used to, I wore a red baseball cap and somebody, one of the guys at the desk assumed I was a messenger. I was like, Really? Oh. Like I'd had things like that happen that another person of color, my friend Richard Baker from Jamaica, we were big buddies up there and they were the guys in the composing room, the colored one, not the that the, the other colored one. It was like, wait a minute, they're talking about us? And I remember us going to a, a restaurant in the country in Massachusetts and going into a diner where people like, they might as well have just like dropped their knives and forks when we walked in there and sat down. Oh. And so living up there was my first like, oh, there's a problem with this black thing. I didn't realize that. You know, I've been growing <laughs> up in the Bronx and, you know, New York and a multicultural family and people of different skin tones and shades. And it just was never an issue. And then all of a sudden in Boston, it was an issue. And mm-hmm. even when I started at Rolling Stone, I remember Do the Right Thing came out. And, well, what do you think? We really want to know what you think of the movie. And it's like, me? What do you care about? Oh, really? It's like, so you want like a black opinion? Oh. And so, yeah, I've had a, I'm meandering from whatever you've asked me, but. How does that make you feel, though, when, when, like those, that. when those situations happen? 
I guess, again, because it wasn't, it just wasn't a big deal in many ways as a kid. And yet later, when I was older, my mother said, you know, remember when we first moved to this neighborhood, your father, they kept taking us to all these sort of so-so neighborhoods. And my father was like, no, we want to live there. And they're like, no, 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 no. How about here? And he's like, no, I want to live in that house. And then they were like, oh, and when we moved to that house, which was just a regular house in the Bronx, not anything special, the neighbors across the street would call realtors and say our house was for sale. And my mom was like, the house wasn't for sale. Oh, you know, and then they would put their garbage in front of our house because instead of leaving it in front of theirs for pickup on their side of the street and things I didn't know as a kid because they didn't tell us, you know, mm-hmm. that later on I was like, oh, my goodness, like you guys were pioneers in your own little way. And you put up with nonsense from these neighbors. And that's why we couldn't yeah. ride our bikes and turn in other people's driveways and stuff like that. That we kind of didn't wander around as much as other kids. And I guess they shielded us from some of that. But as an adult, I got to to witness it more. But haven't haven't as much as probably so many other people. But when I do have those moments, I'm like, they do the right thing thing. It's like, really? You think I have like special, some special bond with Spike Lee because he's black? Really? Uh, okay. So, like, wait a minute, you didn't enjoy it. <laughs> so, yeah, there's stuff like that that we all roll our eyes at. And I go out to lunch at least once or twice a year with um, Michelle Washington and Raphael Scar from Al- Oh, yeah. And we, we joke that every time that you know, he's going to bring his, his Mexican poncho to steal the silverware. And <laughs> Michelle and I, like, we just make these awful sort of jokes about ourselves. Oh, yep, they're seating us in the back. And, and you know, just it's so great to have this, my little tiny community of people who have the same experiences that, that we can kind of roll our eyes at collectively, you know. So I don't even know where you started with the question, but I, I had to sort of share those stories of moments that well, make I- you roll your eyes. Yeah, and I mean, I guess what I was, you know, sort of asking is when when people think about black designers, certainly when people I think research black designers, you know, there's a handful of of very prominent names that come up, and yours is is among them. It's like you mentioned Eddie Opara, Sylvia Harris, Sylvia Harris, Emory Douglas, you know, et cetera. How do you feel about being at that sort of level where? I don't know if I'm if I'm articulating this properly. Uh, any any sort of different level myself, but it makes me when when you're naming these names, I'm like, why aren't there like twenty other names? Why isn't it easy to rattle off a whole bunch of other names? Why do I do presentation yeah. in my design history class on design and race, and then another presentation on women in design? And it's like I'm telling them because when we look through history, you're not going to find a lot of them. So. You know, I have mm-hmm. to do these presentations to let you know that there are other people out there and that for the, the few minority burgeoning designers I have in my class, it's like, no, there's there's stuff out there for you and there's support and there are other people, there's success stories. But the fact that I still have to do those kind of presentations, particularly women, it's like, oh, this isn't good. Yeah. But I think it's getting better. You know, certainly to me, women, woman wise, it's better. Minority wise, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that still. And I love being able to mentor. And there's a young woman named Elena who I had in pre-college who's um, just this great kid who I feel like 
I sort of took her under my wing when she was 17 and now she's out there working and it's like, what are you doing? How's your job? Do you have benefits? And yeah, so it's <laughs> when I see somebody and they're working hard, then I'm like, I'm on top of you. So, so I, again, I'm, I'm probably not answering your question, but if you're in that rarefied air you speak of, it's your responsibility to be mentoring and helping and teaching and doing all that. Yeah. And not just, you know, not just cash and checks. So. No, I think I think you answered it. I mean, I've, I'm sure I stumbled through asking it in a no, no, no. <laughs> in, in a very proper way. But I I just wonder that because I mean I've I've interviewed like if someone asked me I'm probably the the wrong person to ask. I could <laughs> I could rattle off dozens of, of black designers like well, oh yeah there's this person and these two and I can't you know I should be able to I'm old you're young I mean you're interviewing them so that's that's that gives you the the leg up there but. Like, I've been around a long time. I should have more peers to hang out with, to joke about stealing silverware with and stuff. And I don't. Here's a question then, because now you just made me think of something else. So because you are, you know, kind of sought out, of course, in, in many spaces for for speaking and showing your work and things like that, do you see these as opportunities that you can kind of then show the next generation yes, of, yes, of yes, what's yes, out yes, there? Yes, absolutely. And that's why I do it, because... There are definitely times when it's like, uh, I could just stay home, you know, but yeah, yeah it's, it, that's my responsibility to do that. So, and, and it's fun and it's, it's energizing. And I, you know, I finished teaching a class or doing a workshop or a talk and I'm like, yay design, you know? So I, I yeah. walk away feeling good about it too. So. I know with other designers that I, that I speak with on a fairly regular basis, we tend to get tired of seeing the same names everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a slight on on you. I'm not <laughs> saying it that way. No, no, no. no. I was going to say, it's not, <laughs> I'm not coming down on you. But we'll, you know, look at, at conferences and panels and things like that. And it's like, really? This person again? Mm-hmm. How many times do we have to hear from this same person on their same perspective yeah. over and over and over again? And, and you're wondering... What are they doing to kind of help bring new voices to the table? Like, I know certainly in tech, that's something which I think the tide is sort of changing. We see a lot of newer voices coming up these days. But in design, it kind of seems to be the same, I don't know, like five or six dozen folks Mm -hmm. making the circuit everywhere. And then I'll get people that come on the show that want to know, well, how can I get into the, the speaking circuit? Or how can I get my name out there? And it's like, well... I mean, you just kind of have to keep doing good work and hope you get noticed because yeah. it doesn't seem like those opportunities are there to get that next level of recognition, so to speak. And, but once you do, and then you sort of get in that that circuit of people who speak, then then you you keep speaking. You don't start to say, "I don't want to take two flights," or "I don't want," you know. You do it, so it's it's good. It's good for everyone. And there's there's never an occasion, or there's a rare occasion when I don't walk away thinking that was that was good. That was a good thing. Glad I did that. And okay. it's great to meet other people. And even when it's a small crowd and you're like, oh, my God, I'm such a failure. Nobody came. There's those moments that sort of really hurt your little fragile designer ego. And then there are great moments where everybody's having fun and you feel like you got through to someone and people get in touch after or they come up to you. And again, it's responsibility. I have been a lucky person who's worked hard and I need to give back. So and it's fun. So. What do you want to see more of from the design community? Well, I mean, at this point now, I want to see more diversity represented. Where even however many years ago, that article, 
I was like, yeah, no, it's sort of more of a woman problem. Now I'm like, eh, hmm, I see more of a little bit of a, a problem in finding people of color in the crowd. And I want to do something about it. I want to do something about in teaching that there are not enough people. Yeah. At studios, wherever. Yeah. So it's now figuring out how to do that, how to write about that, how to find an audience, listen to me, sort of help figure that out. Is there a book in there or something? So I definitely think there could be a book in there. And certainly with, with education, because we've had other design educators on the show, I guess there, there has to be a way to, to work it into the curriculum in some yeah, sort of way. Yeah. But speaking back to black and design, I had encountered this student who, uh, she is a designer at, she's a design student at Micah. Mm-hmm. Her name is, I just want to make sure I get it right, in DK. And Dekay, I'm messing up. And Deye, and Day. You know what? I'll get it right. I, anyway, she was telling me kind of about her experience there and how she's like the only black girl in her classes. And that, you know, at the end of the week, it kind of feels like there's nothing that is speaking to her as a, she's black and Senegalese. And like there's nothing that's speaking to her as her culture in terms of design. And she's not really seeing that at the school. So I was like, yeah, well, that's. You would think, you know, and I don't know how, you know, how often design curriculum like that is updated, but, you know, there's more design schools and designers out there than just Eurocentric point of view. Yeah. Do you know Jacinda Walker? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know (laughs) Jacinda. Jacinda's been on the show. Her and I were part of the, I actually brought her into the DNI task force. She's now the current chair. Oh, yeah. I know Jacinda pretty well. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, make sure you talk to her. She's out there doing a lot around oh, yeah. um, design thinking and, of course, kind of blazing the trail via AIGA. Mm-hmm. So I, I applaud the work that she's doing. Yeah, with Diane Holton for AIGA as well. Yeah, I feel like there are a couple of people, but there need to be more. So Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you want to be doing? Any any dream projects think, or anything? I really like what I'm doing right now at the college in I, I just need more people, put my little plug in, to uh, to help me do it. And I like juggling a lot of stuff. So I feel like things are, are pretty good right now. I want to write more. And I, I keep saying that and then not doing it enough. So whenever I say it out loud in a situation like that, it makes me feel like, okay, you just said it out loud. So now you got to do it. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's it. And actually, I want to sort of have a little more time away from what I'm doing because I've, I've learned in my, my old age here that the time away from work is really valuable. The recharging and the seeing places and sort of stepping away. You come back mm-hmm. like, like I've got a hundred ideas now. Ah. So I've always been enthusiastic about design so much so that I never take a break. And now I'm like, Oh, that's why people take breaks. So so like a bit of a sabbatical? No, 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 no. Can't afford that. But oh. I just need like a oh. vacation. <laughs> so, you know, to like get on a plane and go somewhere just for fun. You know, or uh-huh. I go up to the country sometimes. It's like, oh, my God, this is life changing. Ah. So, you know, just do more stuff like that, that you're not sort of always in work mode. And it makes it makes your work better, you know, and, and your life better. So, Well, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Let's take a trip, Maurice. Yeah, let's do it. We should do it and, and document and everything. I'm totally up for that. <laughs> we, can, we can write it off. Yeah. 
Well, Gail, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything that you're doing online? I have a very old website that a friend is going to start updating. It's just gailycurl.com. So it's really tiny and it's not responsive, but someday it will be someday soon because my friend Nigel is working on it. And I have another site for Anderson Newton Design. It's andersonnewtondesign.com with my friend Joe Newton. So, and that hasn't been updated in a while, but there's some stuff there. I'm on Instagram as Gailey Curl. I'm not the Twitter, not a Twitter gal, so I don't do that, but I'm on, you know, Facebook. I'm, I'm not good with the social media stuff, but I'm trying. So, okay. You can see pictures of my nieces and nephews. And <laughs> if you want to see Crosby, you can get on Instagram. All right. Uh, well, you know, well, this is you've contacted me, and I'm always, yeah, and, and I don't feel so <laughs> even though I had to push this a little bit that we did this because it's nice looking at your little face on my screen. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, Gail, I, I have to say thank you, you know, so much for for taking the time out to come on the show. I mean, we've talked about you know, kind of occupying that that rare air. But I think what is, is so good about your work is aside from just the impact that it's had on design culture as a whole is that you're really actively giving back to the design community and helping to bring up the next generation of designers. You know, a lot of your work has been in and around education, you know, through SVA. And so Mm -hmm. I really like that you're kind of giving back and, and showing us, what the future can look like for designers yeah. and pushing us and, and hopefully, you know, that diverse design future that, that you're talking about will happen because of people like you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate you it. And we'll make our plans for Harvard. So absolutely. All right. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Gail Anderson. And thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Gail and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their goal is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design in a lot of different ways to make that happen, whether that's creating prototypes, building new tools, or helping shape experiences. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or just tell a story, MailChimp makes it really easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. Automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and watch your results roll in. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing domains. They offer free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of different domain extensions, and you can connect those domains to your WordPress site, your Behance profile, your Dribbble profile, your LinkedIn profile, any profile that you want. Ready to get started? Just go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path and you can get 60% off on all their hosting plans. SiteGround, 
web hosting crafted with care. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, please do me a huge favor. First, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, and next, leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really helps the show out by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design Podcast, and I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work that we're doing here with Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, if you support our mission, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. For just $5 per month, you can get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.